The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Uh, what is the status of the Chinese artificial island construction program? What is the Chinese endgame here, and has any Pacific nation made an effective response? Why is it legal for elected and appointed public officials to lie without proof to the public they are working for and supposedly serving? What would happen to a criminal prosecution of Trump once he declares himself a candidate? for 2024. So with people still being arrested and charged and prosecuted a year later, I'm wondering what has surprised you the most so far about that whole process. Then a thorough examination of the conspiracy law in light of the publicly known facts surrounding the insurrection, specifically examining the larger conspiracy overturn the election. If you were to apply your skills in evaluating the current state of American democracy, what would be your assessment? I wonder if you would consider playing Sophia Yan's fantastic rendition of the intermezzo from Schumann's Carnival Scenes from Vienna. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 3rd, 2022. As is our annual tradition, today we're bringing you the Lawfare Ask Us Anything episode. You, the listeners, sent over your questions, and we, the Lawfare staff and Lawfare contributors, have got answers. So enjoy. It's a podcast where we have questions on the South China Sea, January 6th, and an interesting collection of questions about elected officials, the executive branch, and constitutional issues. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 3rd. Ask us anything. Hello, I'm Tirokonen calling from Finland. My question for uh, the Lawfare podcast, uh, what is the status of the Chinese artificial island construction program? Uh, what is the Chinese endgame here, and has any Pacific nation made an effective response? Thank you. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Julian Ku. I'm the Maurice A. Dean Distinguished Professor of Constitutional Law at Hofstra University on Long Island and a contributing editor to Lawfare. This is a great question about how things are going in the South China Sea with respect to China's artificial islands. I think it's fair to say the story over the past few years has been about consolidation of those uh, of China's position on those islands, but not expansion. On the other hand, uh, there's no prospect of any serious pushback against those islands as well. 
So it's fair to say with respect to those islands, China has uh, really improved the military capabilities of those islands by stationing missiles, which they say are defensive, and other military weapons there, as well as, uh, in some cases, deploying fighter jets to those artificial islands. Uh, this is in violation, at least from the perspective of the United States, of a promise President Xi made pre- to President Obama that he would not station or did not intend to militarize those islands. But at least based on those definitions, it, they've definitely become militarized, and China has really improved the military capabilities of those islands. In the last week, there have been reports about uh, China has really upgraded its ability, its electronic warfare capabilities, uh, using those islands to really create the ability to jam radars and other military navigational technologies and communication technologies um, in the South China Sea um, as a mechanism for further defending those islands. On the other hand, China, as I mentioned, has not expanded the islands at all, but it's fair to say that uh, no nation has been able to put a pressure on China to roll it back. Um, the U.S. has imposed export controls on sales to Chinese companies involved in the construction of facilities on these islands. But um, more aggressive sanctions, thus, such as those proposed by Senator Marco Rubio in Congress, which would essentially sanction any companies from doing business or being involved in construction or sales or work on those islands from the United States sanctions, none of that has been acted upon in Congress and doesn't seem to have any prospect of doing so. With respect to the neighbors, China's neighbors in Southeast Asia, they've uh, been involved with a long-term negotiation for really two decades now for a code of conduct with China, and this is supposed to be the way to manage the disputes in the region. But even that code of conduct, which a couple years ago there had been some prospect of it reaching some sort of outcome, seems to be dragging out and the prospects seem to be dimming, that the uh, the Southeast Asian countries are a little less, um, at least some of them are less willing to make a deal with China because they, I think they've lost some of the trust they might have had, um, especially because of the artificial islands. Uh, from the U.S. perspective, the um, it has managed, the Biden administration has managed to raise the South China Sea as something that it's not just something the United States uh, should care about um, or the Southeast Asia should care about, but has actually been something that now other countries, especially its European allies, are now worried about and involved in. It has held several military exercises in or near the South China Sea with countries like Japan, the UK, and France. And interestingly, even Germany has become much more assertive in the region. It sent a frigate. It currently has a frigate that passed through the South China Sea. And it has even issued statements condemning a certain Chinese provocations in the South China Sea against the Philippines. It has further promised to send more naval uh, tours or naval assets to the region in the next in the coming years. So it's fair to describe the situation as a stalemate, with China consolidating the gains it's made through the artificial islands, and uh, the U.S. and its allies in Southeast Asian nations sort of trying to hold the line, um, but not able to push back any of the gains that China has consolidated. Anyways, I hope that answers your question. Take care. This is Julian Koop. Why is it legal for elected and appointed public officials to lie without proof to the public they are working for and supposedly serving? If a public official asserts something, they should at least have to provide the source of what they are saying. In other words, they need to show their work. It may not be sound-biteable, but facts matter. Employers are able to fire employees that lie on the job, so should we. The unaccountable big lie eventually led to a failed insurrection, and an insurrection without serious accountability is an invitation to try again, as is lying without accountability. 
Thank you. I'm Alan Rosenstein, Senior Editor at Lawfare and Associate Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota. In some contexts, lying by public officials is prohibited. For example, before he was pardoned by President Trump, former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn was prosecuted for lying to the FBI. And more generally, courts can punish public officials, including the president, for lying, at least where those lies form the basis for official action. For example, when the Supreme Court rejected the Trump administration's attempt to add a citizenship question on the 2020 census, it did so because it concluded that the administration's stated reason for adding the question was, quote-unquote, pretextual, that is, a lie. But ultimately, I think using the law as the main way to punish lying politicians would be a mistake. The ultimate responsibility for deciding what counts as a lie, and in particular a serious lie, has to remain with the public. If the public thinks a lie is serious enough, it can vote a politician out of office or punish that person's political party. And in extreme cases, lying to the public can be cause for impeachment. But if the people don't care enough about honesty in their politicians to punish them when they lie, no legal regime can fix that. Hi, um, is there someone that could talk about what would happen to a criminal prosecution of Trump once he declares himself a candidate for 2024? Would that mean stopping the prosecution while he runs for office? Thank you. Bye. This is Ben Wittes, Editor-in-Chief of Lawfare. The answer to this question is no. Uh, there is no constitutional or legal or other prohibition against prosecuting somebody who is merely a candidate for president. There may be a constitutional prohibition against continuing the prosecution once that person is inaugurated as president. That is a very complicated question on which the scholarly community is divided, and it is a long-running debate, and the, the executive branch takes the position that the president cannot be prosecuted while he is in office. But that is a matter that only would come into play were Trump reelected and then inaugurated uh, it doesn't affect somebody who is merely a candidate. Now, the wrinkle is that there is a bit of a normative tradition against prosecuting, you know, your political enemies because they're your political enemies, right? And so to the extent that somebody brought a case against Donald Trump, he would surely argue that this was political retaliation and, uh, you know, that it was you know, targeting him to prevent him from running to, for president. But that is a public relations argument that he would make, not a legal claim. Uh, I suppose you could kind of craft a legal claim out of it. Um, but ultimately, it would not affect, you know, it might affect the atmospherics around a prosecution, but it wouldn't affect the legal integrity of the prosecution. Hi. So we are coming up on the one-year anniversary of January 6th, and I know a lot of people, myself included, are going to be thinking about and talking about it in the next few days. So with people still being arrested and charged and prosecuted a year later, 
I'm wondering what has surprised you the most so far about that whole process. This is Natalie Orpet. I am executive editor at Lawfare. So my first reaction to this question is just that it's really difficult to say what's surprising because this is such an unprecedented event. There have been over 700 people who have been indicted. More are undoubtedly coming. And this is the largest criminal investigation in American history. But I guess a couple of things I do find surprising. On the one hand, I'm surprised that there isn't more interest in the criminal prosecutions, because personally, I think it's so important that the people who did this are held accountable. People chose to be there. They committed crimes. Some of them were extremely serious crimes. There's millions of dollars of damage to what many Americans consider to be a really hallowed space. There were really serious threats to lawmakers. Um, people were hurt. Five people died. And four other people committed suicide after suffering from the trauma of the attack. So to me, holding individuals accountable for what happened that day is absolutely essential. On the other hand, it's not that surprising that prosecutions have not been getting more attention because our legal system moves relatively slowly in this respect. And it would have been a lot more cathartic had there been some way to prosecute and immediately hold accountable the entire mob, everyone who had been there that day. But that's not how our legal system works, and that's not how the rule of law works in this country. Individuals bear responsibility for their individual crimes, and individuals have rights to have those crimes adjudicated fairly, and that's the way that it should be. But that can be a difficult thing to watch unfold at the pace that it does. So I think these prosecutions will get more attention when there are outcomes, when there are things to report that can be explained concisely. And I think that's just how it is. Another aspect of this, I think, is that we have not seen the degree of very serious charges that many people had expected or hoped um, to things like seditious conspiracy or insurrection. But that's not actually very surprising given the scope of this investigation and the number of people who are being prosecuted. It's very common in criminal investigations for the most serious crimes to be charged last. And that's because those cases are the most complicated and require the most from prosecutors. They are gathering evidence. They are working to prove their cases. They are almost certainly relying on cooperators, including many who have pled guilty to lesser charges in these earlier stages in cases that have been resolved already. But the most serious charges and the most serious cases are undoubtedly to come. And I know there's been frustration with the fact that there have been many defendants charged with lesser crimes, including misdemeanors and things like trespassing, that people perceive as not being serious enough. And it's difficult to talk about in generalities because, of course, every case is specific to its facts and to the defendant who is being charged. But I think it is important to remember that this is not uncommon for criminal cases. In the federal system, about 90% of criminal cases are resolved through guilty pleas. So this is not disproportionate at all compared to what normally happens. Of course, like I said, none of this is normal. So I think the answer is that there is still a lot to come. There are still a lot of prosecutions that are pending the vast, vast, vast majority. And so we'll see what happens with them. And the last thing I'll mention is I've been surprised because it's such a novel legal argument to see that prosecutors are 
relying quite a bit on a law that was passed actually in the wake of the Enron scandal as part of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. For those of you keeping track, it's 18 U.S.C. 1512 C2. So this is a law that prohibits corruptly obstructing an official proceeding. In the original context, it was contemplated mostly with regard to criminal proceedings. Um, It was passed in response to Enron's burning of incriminating financial documents that could have been used in the criminal proceedings. But here, prosecutors are arguing that it applies in connection with Congress's certification of the election as the relevant official proceeding. Several defendants have already challenged the statute on the grounds that it's unconstitutionally vague, and already there have been, though, two separate judges in the district court in D.C. who have rejected those arguments. So, so far, it does seem like that will be a useful charge. Um, It carries a 20-year maximum prison term, so it can be a very useful tool for prosecutors. So there's a lot more to say, but I think this has been plenty of an answer already, and I think this will just all be very, very interesting to watch. So stay tuned. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Then a thorough examination of the conspiracy law in light of the publicly known facts surrounding the insurrection, specifically examining the larger conspiracy to overturn the election and the liability of those who knew or did only parts of said conspiracy would be helpful uh, in light of Navarro's article this morning. Thank you. Bye. All right. Well, a thorough examination of this question might be a book-length project, Uh, So let's start with a cursory podcast AMA answer to the question. All right. I think uh, you need to start with the question of, uh, with the issue of how conspiracy law works, which is conspiracy is, there has to be an agreement and an overt act between two people, or at least two people, to commit a crime. So your first question would have to be, what is the predicate crime? And I I think that's actually a hard question here. But let's assume that your predicate crime is some kind of insurrectionary activity. Now, the problem is that that encompasses the violent activity of January 6th, but insurrection or rebellion does not really encompass the machinations to get people corruptly to 
overturn an election using the lawful electoral vote counting mechanisms. So the the first problem is that it, I, I'm not sure you're talking about one conspiracy here. There may be more than one, and it is not clear to me what crime somebody who just was planning to persuade the vice president to count the votes wrong, what what exact offense that would be. So the, your first problem is going to be what's the what's the predicate offense for the conspiracy. The second problem is that in order to have a conspiracy, you do need to have an agreement between people to engage in it. Now, I think that's going to be easier to show with respect to the vote counting machinations than it is with respect to the behavior of senior people with respect to the violence on January 6th. With the vote counting stuff, there are, people are talking to one another. There's, you can, you can find, I think you could find a group of people who probably agreed. That said, again, I don't know what the underlying predicate offense there would be. But uh, with respect to the January 6th violence, it is much harder, I think, here to identify an agreement. Certainly, there are groups of people and there are indictments uh, involving the Proud Boys, for example, where there are groups of people who engaged in conspiracy. But I don't know that it will be easy to show. And I'm not sure it will be possible to show because I'm not honestly sure that it's true that there was an agreement between political echelon leaders and violent protesters to do anything. I think rather what there was, was there was a conspiracy to incite. And here, the problem is that the First Amendment is incredibly protective of speech that has the effect of inciting, even if it's intended to incite, if it doesn't fit into the very narrow confines of uh, activity under the Brandenburg test. And so I think you've got basically three big problems with a broad conspiracy claim uh, against political leaders. One is that you know, it's honestly not clear that they're not allowed to try to overthrow an election by getting state legislatures to send in different slates of electors or getting members of Congress to vote not to accept the electors. It's a violation of their oath or off of office. It's not clear to me that it's a crime and therefore it's hard to conspire to do it. Uh, with respect to the violence, I think there is probably, you know, connective tissue problems with showing that the political echelon people had an agreement with the violent operators. And to the extent that they did what we know they did, which was stoked and, and egged on, they're going to, you're going to find that the uh, Brandenburg test is extremely protective, even of a conspiracy claim. So those are the reasons to be skeptical, I think, that the that there is a conspiracy case to be made against the political leadership. 
And I think those are probably the reasons why one has not materialized yet. Could they be overcome? Yes. You would have to have uh, substantial new evidence that bore directly on people's specific intents. And that is why the testimony of people like Mark Meadows and uh, Steve Bannon is actually really important. I guess I'm curious that if the Supreme Court either doesn't take Trump versus Thompson, or if they take it and they rule against Trump, does that necessarily mean that the um, that this case uh, with Mark Meadows and the other, you know, the other people who are not complying, do those cases become moot and decided, or are there some reasons why it's not that simple? Thank you. Hey, John. Lawfare Senior Editor Scott R. Anderson here to take a crack at your very good question. You are totally right that there's an overlap between some of the legal questions that former President Trump is bringing to the Supreme Court in relation to the litigation over the National Archives request, that's the Thompson litigation, and some of the lawsuits brought by Mark Meadows, as well as Alex Jones and some others relating to the January 6th committee's activities. But there's not a total overlap. Former President Trump argued before the D.C. Circuit and lost and is now petitioning for review by the Supreme Court over essentially three issues, kind of bundle it together, arguing first the January 6th committee wasn't properly constituted or is not properly empowered to do these sorts of investigative activities. Second, that they are not acting pursuant to a required legislative purpose related to that kind of, although, or you can consider it as a separate issue. There's also this question as to whether what they're doing complies adequately with the Mazars decision from last year by the Supreme Court. Um, So basically whether it violates some sort of separation of powers principles. And then there's the executive privilege question, which is kind of, I think most people see as the most serious argument um, that former President Trump is making because it does hinge on some ambiguous language that one could read as supporting their position in earlier Supreme Court opinions, although I think the, the bulk of opi- expert opinion is does not support his particular position, uh, and the D.C. Circuit ruled against him there. So if former President Trump either is not granted review by the Supreme Court or is granted review and then loses on those issues, they will be decided uh, at least for purposes of the D.C. Circuit, which is where the Meadows litigation uh, and the Jones litigation have been filed as well. And so those three issues will essentially be decided. Maybe there are, are certain facts or certain ways Meadows or Jones will try and distinguish to some extent what exactly has has been decided by the Supreme Court. But That's probably going to be a strained interpretation. They're basically making the same legal arguments. But they make other legal arguments as well. In particular, both Meadows and Jones essentially argue that the committee's activities are also in violation of the Stored Communications Act, particularly certain types of subpoenas and requests being issued, violation of the Fourth Amendment, violation of the First Amendment, uh, free speech rights for Meadows' purposes, for Jones's purposes, uh, rights as a journalist, um, although there's some tension there because Jones has in the context of other litigation arising out of um, the Sandy Hook shooting and some of his controversial statements regarding that, about it being faked in other regards, and litigation arising out of that. He's actually argued that he's not a journalist. He's an entertainer. So there's a little bit of tension there in, in how he portrays his role. And then Meadows has also advanced this position that he is protected by certain testimonial immunity, which is arguably a little distinct although closely related to the executive privilege question, um, it would probably have to be addressed separately by the courts. So 
while those first set of issues will be decided for the purposes of those two pieces of litigation and, and other litigation that might come up and it seems likely to come up because there's a, a game plan now of these people advancing similar arguments, those remaining issues, the Fourth Amendment, the First Amendment, the Stored Communications Act, and testimonial immunity will still have to be decided. That said, I think the general mainstream view is that really the executive privilege is the bulk of the game here. The rest of these arguments are stretches. Uh, and so the most significant issue will be decided in that litigation and in the National Archives litigation if the Supreme Court denies review or if it rules against former President Trump. Oh, and one thing I should probably note, uh, the USG is filed, is supposed to file its briefing, I think, on December 30th and has requested that the Supreme Court basically decide whether it's going to take up this issue or at least begin to consider taking up this issue on expedited schedule. Uh, so at their conference in the week of January 14th, that's several weeks faster than the normal cycle for petitioning Supreme Court for review. So we should hopefully know by, you know, the last half of January, whether Supreme Court will be granting review or not. If it doesn't grant review, of course, then the D.C. Circuit's opinion will stand. If it does grant review, then we'll have to see which way it rules. But uh, that will at least means that we should have a little more clarity on this issue in the next few weeks and where it's headed from there. Hope that answers your question. Thanks so much. Hi, my questions are in reference to an opinion piece in the Washington Post by Dana Milbank, dated December 17th. And these questions are for Dr. David Priest. If you were to apply your skills in evaluating the current state of American democracy, what would be your assessment? Uh, also, your thoughts on Dr. Walter's opinion that the United States has entered very dangerous territory. Thank you. This is David Priest, Lawfare's publisher and the chief operating officer of the Lawfare Institute and former intelligence officer. You ask about the evaluation of the current status of American democracy and what my assessment would be. I am concerned, but my own background in political science and history, as well as my previous intel experience looking at foreign country stability, suggests to me that it's a stretch to say that the United States does not qualify as a democracy anymore. Listen, we have hundreds, thousands of elections at the local, state, and national level that are still free and fair. And look, the most recent election that got a lot of attention was the presidential election, and on that one, the cybersecurity and infrastructure security agencies, Election Interference Government Coordinating Council, I think that's what it's called, they called this the most secure election in American history. But to your second question, my thoughts on the opinion that the United States has entered very dangerous territory, the opinion of Dr. Barbara Walter at UCSD that we have entered dangerous territory Damn right we have. Um, that's primarily because of a significant percentage of one party's adherence in a two-party system saying that they would support the use of violence to put their preferred candidate in power regardless of the election results. This is a dark, dangerous road to go down. Yes, there are other reasons to be concerned about voter access to polls and equal representation, but that fact the willingness to overthrow long-standing norms about accepting the results of free and fair elections, that's the main reason that I'm concerned. And the people subscribing to that point of view should, should be quite concerned themselves because history is littered with remains left behind as revolutions eat their own. 
With her permission, of course, I wonder if you would consider playing Sophia Yan's fantastic rendition of the intermezzo from Schumann's Carnival Scenes from Vienna without the usual voiceover. The music's emotional kaleidoscope makes for wonderful under-narration theme music for the Lawfare podcast, but it's rather nice all by itself. Optional, Ms. Yan or Mr. Wittes could share how this piece came to be chosen for the purpose. Thank you very much. Yeah, so I can, in fact, tell you how this piece, how we chose this piece. Uh, so originally, if memory serves, Sophia played a, a piece by Chopin, which we used as the uh, original theme music for the earliest Lawfare podcast episodes. And then I forget exactly when it would have been uh, in sometime in 2013, I expect. Bobby Chesney and I uh, did a project in which we went into NSA during the Snowden period, and we interviewed a whole bunch of senior NSA officials, and we did it as a special project of the Lawfare podcast. And at that time, I thought, huh, we we should have sort of special music for this. Uh, and so I asked Sophia to just send me recordings of uh, whatever she had been playing recently that she had recorded. And she sent me, among other things, the uh, Schumann Carnival music, which I, uh, you know, was a piece I had heard before, but did not uh, know especially well. And that movement in particular kind of grabbed me by the throat. And I thought I can use this as the theme for the Lawfare podcast and have a, you know, a pull quote from somewhere in the interview followed by a one minute introduction. And that was how the kind of modern format of the Lawfare podcast came to be. It's partly because it fits so well in that one movement. And uh, yeah, so we will, uh, in celebration of the piece and also in the uh, in honoring the request by the listener, uh, we will go out with the full piece uh, without anybody talking over it. So let me just say, I'm going to do the credits now so that it doesn't interfere with the piece. Uh, the Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode, we kind of don't have one, but it's kind of Jacob Schultz who has been uh, doing the yeoman's work of circulating questions to everybody and facilitating answers. We are, of course, edited by the one, the only, Jen Patya Howell. Become a material supporter of Lawfare. You can do it at our Patreon page, uh, patreon.com slash lawfare. Our music is, of course, performed today, as always, by Sophia Yan. And here it is.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.